0: You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at net slash talks.
1: And so I'm, I'm really excited to um, hear from these artists who I think of as friends of Basquiat, if I could sort of move away from... Thinking of influence, we're so thinking about Basquiat's legacy through, in a way, this kind of art of friendship. Whether um, one was actual friends with Basquiat, but or also, um, as I am, I think, spiritual friends or spiritual collaborators with Basquiat. Um, so, on this <clears throat> fantastic panel, we have, um, to the very right, Karen Miranda Augustine is a Canadian visual artist and writer whose works have exhibited in Canada, the US, Scotland, and Haiti at the Second Ghetto Biennale in Port-au-Prince. She's been published and cited in various books and publications including Caribbean in Transit, Arts Journal, The Queer Encyclopedia of the Visual Arts, um, The Art of Reflection, and Arc Magazine. Formerly, She was the founding editor of At the Crossroads, a journal for women artists of African descent. She's editor of MIX, independent art and culture magazine. Um, And she's also a a radio host for 88.1 FM of Black African Sisters of Soul. A mixed media artist, Karen Miranda's creative projects ride on the confluence of sex, pop culture, spirituality, and the underground. She holds an M.A. in Interdisciplinary Studies from York University and is a contributing author to the forthcoming book, Queers We're Here. Next to Karen is um, Fab Five Freddy. Born Fred Brathwaite, or Brafit as we might say in Trinidad, to jazz-loving parents in the Bed-Stuy section of Brooklyn. Fab Five Freddy was one of the first graffiti artists to exhibit internationally. Along with friends Futura 2000, Keith Haring, Jean-Michel Basquiat, and Lee Quinones, Fab was key in getting the art world to realize the importance of New York graffiti. His work was featured in the 1980 Times Square Art Show where he met filmmaker Charlie Ahern and developed the first film on hip-hop culture, Wild Style, which he also produced, starred in, and scored. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> After numerous solo exhibits and group shows in the 80s, Fab directed music videos for hip-hop legend KRS-One, Queen Latifah, Nas, Snoop Doggy Dog, and others, and hosted, famously, MTV's Yo! MTV Raps, which spread hip hop culture around the world. Fab has written for Vibe, um, the New York Times Magazine, and served as an executive producer for the VH1 Hip Hop Honors TV specials. His work was recently featured in the Los Angeles Museum of Contemporary Arts, Art in the Streets, a historical survey of graffiti and street art. And next to Fab is Dana Michelle. Dana is a choreographer and performer born and raised in Ottawa and based in Montreal since 2000. Before entering the BFA in Contemporary Dance program at Concordia University in her late 20s, she was a marketing ex- executive, competitive runner, and football player. In 2011, she had the honor of being a dance web scholar, allowing her to deepen her research Process at the Impulse Tanz International Dance Festival in Vienna, Austria. Michelle's newest solo, Yellow Towel, was featured on the top five and the top ten 2013 dance moments in the Voix newspaper in Montreal and Dance Current magazine, respectively. In 2014, she was awarded the newly created Impulse Stands Award in recognition for outstanding artistic accomplishments and was highlighted amongst notable female choreographers of the year by the New York Times. And the New York concluded with Yellow Towel appearing on the Time Out Magazine Top 10 Performances list. Now I wanted to read these bios in full because I want you to know who they are and why they're up here and why we're in for a fantastic um, conversation. So please welcome these artists. Um, So I can't see it, um, but I want to bring, to begin the conversation, um, this famous late painting Eshu, by Basquiat, I think from 1988. Now, this painting is often read by scholars as, you know, sort of this image of a demon who um, kind of marks Basquiat's impending death. Um, I want to think of it a little differently in the sense that um, a number of us already know that this figure or Elegba or Elegwa or Legba um, is a major figure, God in the kind of Yoruba diasporic tradition of the crossroads. He is a god that is the trickster god, right? And so I want to think about this crossroads or to think of um, to reference Jackie Alexander's pedagogies of, of crossing, this crossing, to think of this painting. Um, as presiding, this presiding spirit over our conversation that I think will really be about crossings in a number of ways. Um, I think you hear from their biographies the ways in which um, crossings and crossroads represents interdisciplinarity, that that is an ethic and an imperative for all three of these artists and certainly for Basquiat. Um, I also want to think about um, crossings as... Um, to think about migrations as well, which we'll touch on. But this, th- this painting and this idea of crossings really pushes me to be irreverent about genre <clears throat> and to think about all the marks we make with the body together in relation, whether it's brushstrokes, whether it is dance gestures, whether it is scratching records, whether it is operating a camera, whether it is scribbling. Um, So I I kind of want to begin and just put that out there in terms of crossings. But to begin this conversation um, by thinking about, by thinking about the the question of, of what does it mean to work across different kinds of artistic genres for you? And also, what does it mean for you to engage with Basquiat's interdisciplinary work? Uh,
2: for I'll answer the first one first, yeah. the first part of the question. Sure. Um, <clears throat> for me, I came to I came to to dance or to the performing arts after having kind of already set up what was to be my adult life, um, working in accounting or eventually marketing. Um, oh, damn it, I already forgot the question. It's happening. The white pages, it's happening.
1: Interdisciplinary, how do you Yeah, work? all to say
2: that um, I, I feel like I, I, I come at what I do now from, yeah, exactly, from, from, from various avenues yeah. and um, dance came about, I guess now it 's been about fourteen years, yeah. um, but it still feels it still feels relatively new, yeah. um, and being in the art world still feels relatively new compared yeah. to the base that was set up um, and so in that way, um, when I think about my own interdisciplinarity, is that a word um, i don 't necessarily look at it in terms of oh, I have uh, influence of theater and also i i I'm a dancer and uh, there's a doubling of i, I, I the, it's it's a lot broader um, yeah. it's a lot it's a lot more kind of world and human based is how I think about interdisciplinary
3: um well for me um basically uh like working in different mediums with different forms was just always like uh, a very natural way to express myself uh, yeah. as I kind of moved into uh, the creative arena, which for me started um, <clears throat> as, a, as a teenage vandal, um, if you will, um, <laughs> just not with any real kind of clear <clears throat> artistic direction or motivation, but things began to click early on for me, like, hey, this is like this, so why don't I do more of that? Yeah. Um, and, um, and then, hey, um, these artists from way back then worked in other mediums, like as these mm-hmm. new things would come. Um, just as an example, like when it was all about painting uh, hundreds of years ago, then all of a sudden this thing called photography happened, and it was like yeah. cool artists that I like started playing with photography and then um, you know, filmmaking happened and uh, you know and so that became a, a thing to, to dabble in with certain artists that I connected with and looked at so it just all f- always felt kind of a natural thing to work in other mediums to uh, you know, reach the people that you're trying to reach you know hit em, hit them with a left, hit them with a right yeah. up a cut so that's it. Yeah. Yeah. I guess for
4: me, I've always thought of it more as um, the language that I want to use to express whatever it is that I'm feeling. So, when I think of being an artist that's working in different media, I'm not so much thinking about what that media is, but like what's the most appropriate to yeah. express yeah. how I want to uh, say certain things. Like, when I first started out, I was doing a lot of installation, um, conceptual artwork with. Photo text, and then uh, I needed to get more physical. And then, like, I kind of self taught myself painting, and then realized I'm not really like that painter chick who's doing um, perfect drawings that look like people. Like, I still need to incorporate the photography. I need to, like, use whatever the hell's around me if it's like old wood or something I found off the street. And that, for me, like, forms the language and creates the ability for me to express whatever it is that I'm feeling or what I want to say about the subject matter in my work. So yeah. that's how I would say
1: interdisciplinarity Yeah, I in love relation that. to my work. I love that, this sense of you you pull from what you need to, to make the connection, right? Um, I, I wasn't going to get to this question and, until later, but in, in some ways it's it sort of raised in the sense of you know thinking about Fab's response of, of these relationships, of these, these networks, also being a part of um, artistic practice, and I think you know Basquiat is exciting and interesting in thinking about him as an artist of the coterie. You know, the '80s, you know, downtown New York was such an interesting moment for these artists working in in, in any number of genres, just connecting and playing, right? Um, So this other part of, you know, Eshu, urging us to think about crossing is the way in which Basquiat was this typical Brooklynite, you know, Haitian, Puerto Rican, very typical Brooklynite, typical New Yorker in a way, um, and how he's really, um, as an earlier panelist talked about, he sort of is really a New York artist, you know, he's made by his city and he makes and remakes his city as well. Um, so I'm, I think we have sort of a, a wonderful opportunity here with you know uh, a Montreal, New York, and Toronto artists, and I wonder if you could talk about what does it mean, you know, to sort of work in work in the city. You know, what does it mean to make to be an art maker in the cities that, that you're in and that you remake. Well, for me, one thing that came to mind
4: when I was thinking about Basque and um the sophisticated and very uh, disparate uh, influences, especially on like pop culture and stuff. I yeah. think, especially for myself being first generation, like I totally feel like the most flippin' like, Canadian chick in my whole family. And it drives some people crazy, and you know, but like out of like a Caribbean scene, I don't, I feel like, yeah, it's part of me, but I feel like I'm like. The super Canadian check. Mm-hmm. I think it keeps you very open and a bit more amorphous in the way that you approach creating and subject matter because you may not feel as uh, restricted sometimes, or feel like, or feel as conscious that you're going to work within a certain style or express yourself in a certain way. I think. I don't know, like, if that's how it is for him, but like, I often think about that that we were both like first generation. Brian or whatever, right. and just that that leaves you very uh, open to be like that punk rock girl dealing with like, the hip hop scene, dealing with these, you know what I mean? You just yes. don't feel like I need to limit myself creatively or, um, yeah, whatever you take in, it just feels like, you're if, making, it, if it resonates, it resonates. You're
1: making your space. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Fab, what do you think?
3: <clears throat> well, um, what was the question again?
1: There's a lot. The question about about what does it mean to make our city? Make our city, city. yeah.
3: Man, you know, well, New York, as a lot of other cities, you know, we all had dinner together last night and we were talking about, you know, the fact that when you've been around for for a minute 20, 30 or so years to reflect back, you see these, and in the case of many kind of, uh, well, American cities like New York, you've had tremendous change and evolution, if you will, but yeah, the the New York of the uh, '80s, when I kind of late '70s, actually, when I began to you know step into the arena and um, actually met Jean Michel, it was a real kind of a key point, I think, for for both of us. You know, uh, young black from Brooklyn. Um, we were both, you know, the genesis of our connection, just to share with you guys, was we were both young art nerds that had a. You know, in my case, I used to cut school. I've told the story a million times. but what the hell? Um, I used to cut school and explore different museums throughout New York City, which was v- incredibly exciting for me. The Metropolitan Museum was my favorite because, uh, even to this day, like they suggest that you pay this much, but you could literally give them like a, like five cent and like get in and so um, that was a treat to go from you know Renaissance to looking at armor to looking at Egyptian to contemporary and so you just I mean I'd go a lot and I developed like a connection with these different artists and Jean-Michel when we met we both knew about a whole wide range of artists from Caravaggio to Rauschenberg and we talked oh my god like we could talk about this shit oh my god it's great and um, we both had these early experiences at museums. And so the idea was to, to, to do it kind of like Malcolm X said, by any means necessary. So that was going to be, we're going to do some music, we're going to make some art, we're going to make paintings, we're going to make film, we're going to do TV, we're going to do whatever it is yeah. that like, we can get our hands on just to, just to be heard. So the city was a reflection or a perfect arena at that time because there was a lot of people um, Open to these new ideas. Um, everybody had very little money. Cheap rent was the key glue that brought us all together, which is hard to find in many places in New York. So that was a big part of it all for me, and just and for Jean and other artists that were contemporaries of mine at that time. Right. Um,
2: yeah. Um so I've been in Montreal for 15 years. I moved there initially. Uh, actually, this was I moved there right before kind of making the leap into looking at, at the world of art. I moved there actually. Um, I had spent a little bit of time studying in, in France. And was still quite close. Anyway, oh, I'm not going to go into this whole situation. Basically, I moved to Montreal because I wanted to be like... Uh, it felt a little artier, and it was like kind of had this European thing happening. I just come back from Europe. Um, and But particularly because I had started uh, going to raves. So I was... Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was raving. I was going to raves every weekend. It was my church, so I was like in the suit by week. And then on the weekend... I didn't know anyone in the city yet, but I would just... I would go and be on the dance floor all weekend long. Um, so that's what brought me to Montreal, um, and so eventually, I yeah, I I, I started I started to meet um, some artists, and uh, yeah, I was uh, kind of hungry for for something else, and. Um, And I uh, found myself uh, in the dance department at Concordia University. I I saw an ad in the paper. Uh, So all to say that that, that's what brought me to Montreal. I've been working in Montreal now uh, for contemporary dance. Um, It's been kind of like the, kind of one of the epicenters for, for contemporary dance in North America. Yeah. Um, so it, it it felt like a good place to be, but it's quite like serendipitous because I just happened to be in Montreal, happened to be in the place where contemporary dance is happening, and through raving knew that I wanted to, I needed to dance, but I had no idea what in the damn hell that meant. Yeah. Um, so now at this point, um, what working in in the city, or in Montreal, in particular, I don't know. It's quite it's quite specific. I'm kind of like a, quite a hermit, um, and um, quite influenced by the, the small things in my periphery, and and perhaps um, I can't so succinctly talk about the the, the, the wider city. influence yeah. influences. Sure. But, um, you know, I live in uh, Centre Sud, which is, um, it's like right near the bus station. So there's a lot of poverty, there's a lot of drug abuse, there's a lot of, um, a lot of misery where I live, and um, I somehow, uh, in all of the years that I've spent in Montreal, um, something feels um, it seems kind of dirty to say right, but something feels uh, like it runs a little bit more parallel to what I do in my work, right. um, which, I guess, essentially is looking at marginalization. And so right. there, there's a parallel there.
1: Well, that's. I, I just want to sort of shift. I want to shift to your various practices, actually. But I also want to bring Basquiat in directly. Mm-hmm. I want to think about, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of artists talk about other artists who have given them permission in a certain kind of way, or who have enabled something in their practices. So I wonder if, I don't know if Basquiat was that artist for, for you all, but if you could talk about that or talk about um, ways in which he's inspired your own practices, right?
4: Well, I, I know for myself because um, African spiritualism is part of the vocabulary that I use yeah. to create, whether or not like the piece is actually about that or not. Um, I didn't really get into Vodou until like it was the '90s, and I'd already started creating. But yeah. I would say when I started getting deeper into him, um, it was just like the richness of all the African spiritualism, especially like the Haitian yeah. influence that I could like see littered throughout uh, specific works. Like even the piece Eshu, I've ranted to a few friends about this piece, how it was credited as um, the Yoruba deity. But when things like when you see like Eshu and it's spelled with an X that's going to the Caribbean at that Absolutely. point, you're talking about Brazil, you're Absolutely. talking about Haiti.
1: Um,
4: and Puerto Rico. Exactly, right? And um, I just loved so much seeing someone that was um, taking a contemporary twist on something that is old, it's traditional, especially when you're talking about like African sculpture and stuff. The way that um, uses his forms always remind me of certain... um, Loas and... uh, which are like basically spiritual figures when you're talking about Haitian spirituality yeah. and stuff. Like uh, the, there's um, a couple that are there. Like the, the form of the policeman, it's totally like I just when I look at it, I just think Baron Sandi exactly. or I think Papa Legba, and yes. I'm like, why is nobody else like really writing about that, right? Yeah. But like I see that, but like it's not so literal. But like even like the Nkandi type of figure that he's created himself. And uh, I guess like my experience, because I bring a lot of um, African-based ritual into the vocabulary of how I create, so, and I see like there's something similar that happens with Basquiat's work where people will say, oh, it's very complicated, it's layered, um, there's a lot of uh, images or references, but they're not talking about what those images or references are. Sometimes I feel like maybe they, they're not clear As to what it is, and then the stuff that is clear, I think there, um, and I've experienced with my own work, there's this, uh, there's a block with dealing with anything around African spirituality. African spirituality is, like, it's just looked at as the lowest, right? Like, you can give reference to Hinduism or First Nations spirituality or paganism, whatever, but once it comes to African stuff, you know, people just it's like they hear stereotypes all the time, right? Zombies, this and that. They have no real context. And understanding for the richness, and that what I've always seen in his work is this interesting richness kind of just splattered here and there. Like, whether it's like the way he does the figure, or like even like with this issue, like in this with the condi, and then there's another piece where it's like the genitalia, right? Which always reminds me of certain Haitian sculptures or whatever, but... Um, I think that combined with like all the pop culture, like everything that's very contemporary, it's like such a beautiful and a really uh, um, sophisticated kind of flip. And I think also um, when I look at his work, what I love is just the, it's the real heavy sophistication of everything that I know that he has read and that he has, you know, kind of like taken in and is putting out in a different way and I know like I try to do that with my work sometimes, like people think like certain things are just by chance. I did this piece on um, Eva Lux, I'm working on this series where it's about um, deceased women who were involved in the sex industry, so uh, there's this one woman, Eva Lux who used to keep this really interesting blog Diary of a Pleasure Activist and she did die of, uh, she's a Latina woman who died of a heroin overdose, so I did this research and I found um, like those little baggies that they sell heroin, the little wax paper thing so like somebody has this interesting blog where it's like all the different heroin bags and um, how like they're stamped differently it's almost like a little art thing and it's almost like this very interesting way of harm prevention in a way because people are giving reviews on own. but I made like these flowers like around the edges but it's like if you're not really if you've never used you may not really be thinking the association. But like I know like I try to do like little things like that and when right. I look at his work, I know like he's doing stuff like that, even though I'm not getting everything and there's some things some people just never get, right? Right, right. But um mm-hmm. that was my long <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's great explanation. Uh, but I would
4: say like in those ways that yeah. I would say that he um I feel like kind of affirms the path that
1: I have
4: taken for my own
1: art practice. That's beautiful. Okay. Thank you. So Fab, what about you in terms of you know, especially being having been friends with him? Um, how has your friendship, you know, impacted the art you make, the way you make art?
3: Hmm. Well, there's one story that I remember very, you know, because at the time when I met John, he hadn't really begun to really make paintings Mm. that we all know of now. But once again, like I said, we were all trying to make it and once again have a significant impact on popular culture. Um, So I remember we were doing different things at that time to try to get into the space. Uh, So I remember one day Bumping into Jean Michel in the in the village, um, I was still living in Brooklyn. I had just got off the A train and um, was heading across Eighth Street. And it was like a kind of a springish day. And I said, "Yo, you know, there's Jean Michel. Well, what's up?" He was like, "Yo, man, I just uh, I just sold a painting." I said, "Really?" He says, "Yeah, man. Um, I just he had literally just came from um, meeting with some people, sold the painting for a few hundred bucks." He says, "Yeah, but they didn't get the good one." I said, "Well, I said, well, where's the other one at?" So he reaches into his um, like a, his light jacket, and he pulled out this raw canvas, and he opened it up, and he just put it on the ground. And I looked at it, and um, it was like this crazy image of like these two cars crashing into each other, and it looked really like like a kid had did it. So I'm looking at it, and I'm going, OK. And I'm saying to myself, now, this is my, this is my man here. This is my, this is my buddy. <laughs> um, I'm looking at this image. It's looking kind of crazy. So I'm looking at Jean, and Jean is like, yeah, man. like This is a good one. And I go, OK. So I go, but Jean, like, what are you trying to do here? He says, I'm trying to make art that looks like it was made by by a child uh, or something to that effect and I go okay basically that he had did really well and I remember <laughs> <laughs> and I remember saying to myself like you know this is my buddy here this is my man you know like like easily nine out of ten people, if not all ten people, would have been like, oh, come on, like so many people have responded to Jean's work before they really kind of immerse themselves and realize how focused he is in that. And they go, my child could do that, or my little kid could do that, or whatever. And so I remember going like, that taught me something because like Jean-Michel, I was aware, as I told you earlier, that we had both looked at a lot of art. And there were things that I looked at and and learned about what these artists were doing, as you really study them, whether it's a monochromatic painting by Ad Reinhardt, or Barnett Newman with a zip, or things that Cy Twombly was doing, which I had looked at, and I understood he was an important artist, but some things I wasn't quite getting. And so, as Jean-Michel would begin to expand on these ideas he had, it then helped me understand what other artists were doing and that Jean had also was kind of dealing in that vocabulary, if you will, like a little bit of Cy Twombly, um, Du Buffet, um, and certain painters that move in a certain certain way. And so once again, his particular style of uh, making images didn't affect me directly, but in terms of opening up a discussion and uh, helping me see other works. And you can find comparisons in music as well, yeah. um, where, you know, I grew up close to bebop music. Max Roach was my godfather. I was just talking earlier about growing up here in music. Yeah. And particularly with my father, who liked, as we, most of us do, we like a music from a certain period of time in our life. Oftentimes with folks, it's what you were into as you went from your teens into your young adulthood. And those things have this indelible impact on you. So my dad matured during a period, coming from swing music, when his contemporaries broke away from that and started this thing called bebop, you know. Okay, so bebop did its thing. Um, Towards the 60s, bebop changed into something more freer. Um, Musicians took more wild solos. And some of that stuff I remember my dad didn't get into. Like, he didn't like Miles when he went into jazz rock. He wasn't too much into free jazz. Wasn't crazy about Coltrane. But, but and then I kind of understood why he wasn't, because he was, that was his period, the things that happened at that particular time. So and there's a comparative things that I've seen in visual art and in expression where some people are shut off from a, a certain mode of expression. But then, if one has an open mind and really takes a, 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 a close and a cons- concerned, a concerted look, you can see and, and even learn more about that particular form of expression, which I guess many more people have learned that about Jean Michel, which I think is incredible.
1: Yeah, great, thank you. Um,
2: so, for me, um, it feels uh, it seems kind of more like um, my contact with his work has come perhaps more in like more drips and drabs
5: mm-hmm.
2: so as I said prior to um, prior to starting my, my dance degree kind of like really my, my knowledge of art was uh, nothing um, it was this was really not um, a, a part of the way that I was raised, or, um, but like in drips and drabs, like what attracted me to eventually start working in this. Oh, you know, I would be watching like uh, much music at uh, midnight or something, and I would see like uh, like the Aphex Twin Window Liquor video. Okay, so what what was that? And you know, so that like kind of goes into the bank and does what does its thing or that I'm, I'm dating someone at some point, and he's like, oh, like, let's watch this like Downtown 81 right. uh, tape. And um, so I think that was probably the first time I'd ever heard of Jean-Michel Basquiat, and um, I'm not sure when that was, but it was definitely before I, I, I started dancing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so we were watching this, and at the time, yeah, I, yeah, I didn't know what I was looking at, but whatever I was looking at was uh, deeply familiar in a way that I didn't understand yet. Um, So that was like a couple of drips and yeah, and now um, uh, in the past, I guess, I don't know when, whenever it is that I've kind of started to get my fingers deeper into the pot of of, of art and visual art, and yeah. kind of started to yeah. find my footing and see what was going on. And of course, um, started looking at his work or was introduced to his work. And without knowing very much at all, uh, it was just immediately <laughs> hyper familiar. And I felt as though, like, looking at his work. I felt like we were speaking the same language. Nice. I didn't know what the hell the language was. Yeah. Um, I didn't feel forced to identify um, what the language was or what the subject was or what the form was, yeah. but there was a hyper-familiarity. And, and this continues now uh, in the work that I'm doing. When I came, because um, I did uh, like a little performance the the night that Grandmaster Flash was so I had a chance to, to look at the exhibit, but before the exhibit opened, there was just like the one uh, painting yeah. in the center of the room somewhere in here. And it was the first time that I'd seen his work, like, yeah, live. And already, just like in reproduction and, in books, um, I, <laughs> I would look at this work and my heart would start to palp, like, yes. And, you know, it's sweat. And yeah, seeing this, seeing this painting live then, yeah, I I I could not identify what was going on, but it was a deep I understand you. Yeah. Like we're speaking about um I a million things at the same time um, and it's distilled into this one painting or this one choice of color or um but I I I I really felt a connection to yeah, this kind of like a Choice of choice of color or this kind of chaos, chaos. Uh, um, kind of random like symbolism thrown in there, but that's like ultimately never so random.
1: Right. Um, and I could, you know, you you can't hide from being a dancer in your own gestures. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I love thinking about that. Um, th- you know painting as a vocabulary and the body itself through dance as having a language, mm-hmm. as having a vocabulary that could be the same mm-hmm. as what we see on a canvas, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm listening to um, these three artists talk eloquently about their multiplicities. And, you know, I have a, I, there's a conversation I want to have and I don't know how to have it. Um, except to say, I mean, I want to throw out there that I am sick of the question, is he or she a black artist? I just am sick of it, right? Um, I'm thinking about Basquiat and all of you, and I'm thinking about Sonia Boyce, British artist, who I think in an uh, an interview with Mantia Diawara talked about... um, identity politics and the kinds of advocacy around questions of race, gender, sexuality for marginalized subjects was what got them in the gallery. But she said, once they got in the gallery, they used it against us. That's the exact language she used. They used it against us. So I don't know how to ask what I want to ask, but I'm thinking about this Catch-22 around identity politics, right? How the, the, as I call it, the freight of adjectives, the labels that critics and curators and other people seem to need to organize your work with and what that means to you. How do you deal with this, um, you know, this constant need to make you... Um, static as opposed to dynamic in a way.
4: I think with the visual arts, it's people bring all their experiences and what they know to whatever they're looking at in order to filter it out and interpret it. Yeah. I find um, the problem when you're a black artist because the power dynamic with the institutions, it's not really diverse. So, um, and I can see it. I actually had to stop reading the reviews of this show. Okay. I told Murray White to kick rocks on Twitter. Because <laughs> I just, there, there's something that, hap- there's several things that happen. On one hand, um, Jordana was talking about it earlier, right? There's the personality where, and I was talking to you about this last night too, where um, for black artists it's like, for the black anything actually, creative person, whatever, like yeah. people want to talk about their personality, all the negatives about them. So with the Best Guest Show, I'd just be reading like three paragraphs about his drug problem. Yeah. And then it would actually go to the show. And then maybe it would like talk about like the type of people that ended up going to the opening. Yeah. And the fact that there was a grandmaster play, like it was just so obnoxious. And um, I find that that, It's like this constant that keeps, like, I mean, I find like if the show was on Gauguin, like no one would talk about for three paragraphs about the fact that the guy was a raging hebephile who was spreading syphilis all throughout, you know, Tahiti and whatnot. They're not gonna go on and on about um, uh, Pollock, about how he was a raging alcoholic and probably an abusive bleephole or whatever, and then talk about his work, right? So then like, what is your issue right now? with this person. Yeah. So like, that's a real problem. And I find in general, when you are, especially I'm gonna talk like the Toronto issue, because I know like there's gonna be nuances that are different in the states. The population is very different. Yeah. Pattern of migration, the history is very different than Toronto, but Toronto, a basket would never happen here. Like that's, word. Why? It just wouldn't happen here. <laughs> The wow. number, of be- totally. well, I mean, ask the AGO how many African Canadian pieces of artwork that they have in their collection. Ask okay. any, and it's not even just the, ask any major art institution from the National Gallery to, you know, wherever, BC, whatever, how many African, ask people to name one African Canadian artist other than Stan Douglas. And most people don't even know Stan Douglas is black, so that's always like a joke in itself. (laughs) You know, and then I finally just as a working artist, like I mean, my artwork, I mean, when I started out, obviously, you know, like you're young, you got like your identity issues, you're trying to find yourself and stuff, right? So like, sure, a lot of it was about um, racial issues. A lot of it was about um, sexual assault issues that I was dealing with. But like, that was like, you know, a while ago. And like, now it's like, I can like, tell a curator that my two bodies of work are all about airplanes, and it doesn't matter. They will find a way to make that all about race, because right. that's the only way. And the funny thing is, when you said uh, something about how like you're tired of... Um, the question
1: um, is here. Ar- she- around,
4: around, around the whole thing about a black artists, right. white artists are sick of this, honestly. White, I have fellow white artist friends who say to me they don't understand why curators insist on contextualizing their friends who are like, you know, racialized, like from different groups, why they insist on uh, categorizing their work or contextualizing their work in a certain way when that context does not exist at times. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? At times. World? Listen, like, I mean, you can look at Buscow's work and you can say, yeah, like you said about race, that's not the only thing he's talking about, though, right? You know what I'm saying? So for me, it's like, I look at my work and someone can say, oh, you got race? I'm like, yeah, there's a black chick in the work. But actually, if you really look at my whole body of work, gender is probably the most pressing and the most foremost thing. So Mm. maybe you want to, like, let go of the race stuff for now and, like, let's talk about this other stuff so that happens a lot it's interesting what you were saying about your friend uh, about Sonia Boyce, Sonya Boyce. Um, okay so like your time in like the 80s or whatever right and that was especially in Toronto like late 80s early 90s that was a time uh, especially like OAC was um, I guess trying to open things up and make sure that more diverse groups of artists were getting yeah. funding and stuff yeah and I think um, you know, identity politics, all that stuff, like it has its place, yeah. but after a while, it's also assuming that me and people like me are talking about you, and I have like a much richer life and issues going on, right? So, I, and I can see that at that point, it was very useful as an entry point, but Sonia Boyce is right. I think the problem is people haven't moved on from that, and I think the people who are in charge or the people who are curating have to expand and really be honest about what it is that's resonating with them, right? Like I can hear people talking about Ferguson and stuff. It's like, mm, that type of artwork actually in Toronto is not really, you know what I mean? Like there's a lot of other dynamic, interesting stuff that I'm seeing with like a lot of like the younger artists, artists right. my age, group older. Like it's very diverse range of um, stuff. And it's easy to tap into that if you're willing maybe like to actually like read what the person's saying like maybe like look at what their artwork is about instead of just coming to it with i'm so aware that this person is black right you know or whatever and because of that you are using that to narrate
1: you know and uh, well i think i mean this is interesting because i think basquiat quarrels with our eyes right, that there's so many layers that um, are there, as you're saying, you know, this kind of, these, these um, reductive perhaps, or preconceived categories, is like race, this, that, and the other, before we actually look at what the work is saying. What do you think about that, Dana? I kind of want to continue with Canada and then go to New York. Mm-hmm. So.
2: Um.
1: Sorry, can you repeat because Well I'm sorry. I, okay. I, I mean I, I you know, I'm just thinking about this kind of um, catch twenty-two around identity politics for artists. You know, mm-hmm. how do you negotiate that where people, you know, you said your your work, you know, dealt with marginalization. It's not like any of your works don't touch on political issues or deal with anything engaged with African diaspora, but there's this need to um, make it a representative in a certain kind of way that reduces what you do, mm-hmm. and I'm just wondering, how do you negotiate this problem of, of identity politics?
2: Um, right now, I'm kind of quite deep uh, in the rabbit hole of uh, of, of looking at, at this question. Yeah. Um, so I'm not even quite sure how to answer it anymore because I feel really in, the, in I threw myself in the in the in the thick of it exactly because of frustrations. Uh, oh. I spent many I ooh ooh
5: <laughs> <laughs> You know,
2: uh, the work that I was making at the beginning I realized, I mean, afterwards I realized, but I kind of realized while I was doing it as well, but I was specifically um, trying to not be black. Mm. I was specifically um, mm. trying to not address black things or to, I was trying to, uh, yeah, to, to not point to my identity as much as possible in order, in order to be, uh, Respected is way too heavy a word, but just in order to be regarded as an artist, wow. so the only thing I could think of is I 'm like, well, I'll just go to the opposite extreme in order to be considered as an artist. I will not talk about my identity, and therefore maybe I can establish some kind of a of a, of a, of a base that's more interesting to the words the choices of words um, anyway, after you know ten years of of making work slowly um, um, and not super prolifically, but every critique, every critique that would uh, come out or uh, any interaction with a, a lighting designer on stage or it just always would come back to uh, to race. No, no matter what, yeah. there's just nothing I could do. Yeah. <laughs> um, I. Yeah, it's very crazy. I, you know, I realized I was working with uniquely with white dancers. Yeah. So that I'm not on stage, you, can't, you don't know I'm black. You don't know it. All right. So you know, you got to just like look at the work. But no, nah, it's going to come back to it anyway. Okay. So then it kind of forced me to. Well, maybe, uh, maybe I'm avoiding this. Maybe, maybe this is something that I need to look at. Why am I avoiding it anyway? Uh, so and the last piece that I made was my. Kind of, okay, nothing I can do, so I'm just going to jump into the pool. I'm going to make black work. I'm going to be as black as possible. I'm going to do all kinds of black things. Um, <laughs> uh, so I'm in the middle of that. It's yeah. been like three years since yeah. I've been working on it, and I this feel... This is Yellow Towel? Yeah, yeah. This last piece is Yellow Towel. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah so, it's like a, a, a crazy frustration because uh, in one respect, I'm, I'm happy to finally uh, to be addressing something that is clearly a huge part of my reality yeah. um, and of uh, our realities, so it's important. Um, uh, and speaking of catch-22s, this is it. I, okay, I'm going to make a black work. Critics, you want me to be black, I'll be black. And then somehow the things that are written about the work end up being um, (laughs) even more reductive than they were before. So then I feel like, ah,
1: I did it to myself. What?
2: Damn. What?
1: I mean, this makes me think so much about Basquiat's own anxieties. And I mean, as I put the ring up and, and the conversations about his strategic primitivism and how you know, this space, the gallery space, is both a deeply enabling and disabling space for artists. I mean, I really want you to take seriously what Karen and Dane are saying. Um, Fab, what do you, how, how do you negotiate this this Catch-22 of, I- of identity politics?
3: Yeah, that's interesting. <clears throat> so going back to... Um, once again, you know, how I entered the cultural arena and also right around that same time meeting Jean-Michel, we both had similar ideas that there was a, a space that we could move into where there would be uh, people that would be very open and receptive to our ideas. And at that particular time in New York, that was the downtown new wave punk rock scene. Um, Jean had been kind of more or less living in the down in the Manhattan scene, uh, couch surfing here and there, and I was still at home in Bedsty. Stuy. Um, I came up around very aware. Like I gave you um, a, a, earlier, I talked about how the kind of family I came out of. My grandfather was uh, a close, worked with Marcus Garvey, and then my dad was in the room when Malcolm X was assassinated. So he was this. One of those, as well as being very hip, um, into cool music and stuff, very alert and aware of the position and the situation uh, people of color were in in America and in other places in the world. Um, but along with all that, I was just, a, you know, very open and receptive to popular culture. Wanted to make, you know, do wanted to do what I wanted to do, which was, you know, make a, make a move. And I thought that these people into this punk rock thing, from what I had read, this like re- rebellious idea about, you know, these older rock and roll guys had gotten corny and just full of themselves. And there was this whole like real kind of revolutionary spirit of, um, you know, with the whole, you know, Sex Pistols and the Clash coming from England. And then, you know, the Ramones and Blondie and things going on in New York, it just felt like this would be an audience that I thought would be receptive to these ideas I was formulating that there was a connection between, and this had never been, these things were not printed or it wasn't, you know, articles or rap records selling hundreds of millions of copies, none of that had happened yet, but I felt that there was a connection between this graffiti painting on walls and subways, and this, and this music happening in the Bronx, and this break dancing, and this, and, and this DJing and stuff. And so I took it to those, to those downtown New York punk rock new wave people yeah. who all were white, yeah. and they all were very receptive to these ideas. And it was in that milieu that I met Jean-Michel, once again, thinking along similar lines, which was why we were like, yo, we got to talk. You know, like, we make this stuff stuff happen. So basically, we basically entered the arena um, n- n- not so much waving or demanding that they recognize us as black artists, it was obvious. Yeah. you know, And there were very few of us yeah. making moves at that time, interestingly. Yeah. And there would, often be times, there would often be times when I'd look around in a room at a club, whether it was CBGB's, the Mud Club, Max's, wherever it was, and I'd realize, oh shit, I'm the only black guy in the room. <laughs> But it wasn't a bad thing because we all were positioning ourselves as sort of outcasts, like not trying to be mainstream. So it wasn't, I'm, I'm like, wow, I'm the only black guy here. But I was with like minds, if you will, that were receptive and largely supportive. So I, we both sort of entered the scene um, in a different way, as I now have discussions about racial identity and racial power. I mean, when Jean-Michel and I would talk, it would be about things that, you know, particularly with Jean, having dreadlocks way before that was a style, way before that was, I mean, if you knew about Bob Marley, that would probably be your only pop cultural reference. But literally, there there was almost rarely a day when you would be walking with Jean with somebody white coming towards you, didn't cross on the other side of the street. Yeah. Because it was just like, oh my God, like what's going on? And things have gotten a bit better, but these were times when, you know, getting a cab was really hard. So there were certain things that you had to confront that reminded you of like what you look like and and what the real world is about outside of our little kind of downtown cultural bubble. But it also kind of makes me think about, often a lot lately, is the fact that um, this whole concept, which is a part of uh, the existence that has been, well, particularly, I feel like I'm in America, although I'm in another country, I have to remind myself. <laughs> but uh, so it's a lot different up here, I'm, I'm well aware. However, in America, and you know, when, when one thinks about the idea of racism, the idea of white, the idea of black—like these things were invented yeah. because uh, when you go back to the 16th century, when the slave trade became this big booming business, Europeans didn't like, "Hey, I'm European, I'm white." It's like, no, I'm German, I'm English, right. I'm Scottish, I'm French, and you know, I, I got—I'm I'm about to get it on with you because we don't like you, and we about to get it on with each other. So that was what went on with that, and. Yeah. There was a thing called slavery that existed. It wasn't the, the type of slavery that would develop when the African slave trade became a big booming business, once again, 16th century. So when these people began to all come to America to profit with this new kind of free labor force, yeah. they had to now, it wasn't like, okay, I'm German, I'm Scottish, I'm French, or I'm Dutch, or whatever, Portuguese, it's like, hey, well, we're white, and they're black, and we have to now justify treating them this way. So this is all kind of elementary stuff. If I'm sure people here know this, but if you don't, it's important, and I think of it often, to understand where these things start and, and how they develop. And so we've had to battle through this hundreds of years of just heinous treatment of people and then people having trying ways of justifying this heinous treatment, trying to create pseudoscience to kind of feel better about themselves for for treating certain groups of people a certain way. But these things are are unraveling, Um, not completely unraveled, but they are starting to unravel. And people are beginning to feel this. These are learned behaviors. That I think, and so, you know, as Jean Michel very cleverly and very creatively got himself into the mix, yes. then it's like, oh, he's a black artist. But it wasn't like we were like, hey, we're we're black artists. We were you like, we nah. didn't have
1: a T-shirt. Nah,
3: <laughs> you know, we didn't have a T-shirt. So it's a different <laughs> way that I that we entered, yeah. in a sense, the space. But this still is a discussion that needs to happen and people need to understand what it is. They need to check themselves if they're not thinking about this correctly. Because, you know, yeah, words evolve and meanings expand, but essentially it's just the human race. You know, there's only, that's the only race that it is. You know what I'm saying? So you could have, yeah, but then for operative purposes there, there is a, you know, because, okay, with well you know the black race, if you will, or, the white race, but it's like that really is beginning to unravel when you really think about. Well, what does that really mean? You mm-hmm. know, we're just we're all
1: yeah.
3: pretty much the same with these little variations
1: on the look. Well, until the police come and shoot you, you know. Yeah.
3: Well, that's <laughs> yes, and that's something that's brought these discussions with the with with the help with the help of these cameras that yeah. which people have in their pockets now. These things that people have had to deal with and have been talking about now you know, millions and millions of people around the world can all see clearly exactly what people have been talking about. So, you know, yeah. those, those issues have now come.
1: I, I know we, I, I'm going to move to you all. Um, to, I, I would love to hear the audience, but I just want to move, if, if you could respond quickly, that I, I think um, in many ways, I mean, sort of thinking about the range of artistic vocabularies that um, Basquiat improvises, refracts, revises. I mean, New New expressionism is thought of to to be concerned with the primacy of the gesture, but also with freedom, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that this question about the Catch-22 of identity politics and the practice of making urges me to think, and also Basquiat's work, itself, urges me to to just ask you very quickly, what does artistic freedom mean to you, if you want to take it? (laughs) If you can articulate it, I should say. (laughs)
3: <laughs> I mean, you know, that's one of those questions that we could obviously go on and on and on about, but it's, you know, it's, it's so we could all have different, different ways of breaking that down, obviously. I mean, you know, it could be as simple as, you know, getting to do what you want to do and be, hopefully being lucky enough to earn a living from it. Okay. Um, that could be one thing. But, you know, I think it's, it's all relative to the individual artists in terms of what their goals are, yeah. you know. Um, and so
1: for you, it's about getting to do what you want to do.
3: Essentially, yeah, it. no doubt. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of that ethos came from the whole fundamental thing about New York graffiti when it was raging. It was like, you know, I want, you know, my name. It was like, I want to be as big as that Coca-Cola Advertisement, which is everywhere, it was kind of very simply at the core and right. and like by and and like i'm gonna figure out a way to do that right. and um that would I would use and translate that into other forms that i've worked in It's like, okay, I want to direct, yeah, and um, how am I going to make that happen like how am I going to get like my ideas in terms of uh directing and stuff you know and, in front of people. What's the way in?
1: Yeah.
3: Um, which graffiti at that time in New York, you had to figure out how to get it done, which was quite you know, precarious. A lot of stealth was required. It was a whole other thing to just getting it done right. and then the idea of doing it. So that travels with me and whatever I'm trying to, to get done.
1: That's great. I mean, yeah. I like that thing about um, naming, right? That this Graffiti as this poetics of naming as a kind of freedom, you
3: know. Yeah, that was a big part of it at that point. And once again, you know, it's all like you know, you know, uh, romantic history. That New York, that time. Right. You know, the 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 city. That 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 front page headline of uh, President Ford to to like New York City Drop Dead, when they were burning buildings in the Bronx, and it was just like, looked like it was Dresden after the bombs in World War II, you know, all that stuff, you know, was going on, and so it was kind of like, people were like, look, we don't care, we'll do whatever you want to do, and so out of that angst came a a whole kind of frenzied period of creativity, along with the stuff that came out of you know urban areas of the city, as well as punk and new wave, and just like a radical approach to expression you know, across a lot of different uh, uh, arenas. That was the move at that time. Fantastic.
1: Karen or Dana, you want to jump in?
4: As a Toronto visual artist? So I'm going to talk only about my generation. And I don't know if it would be... Uh, don't focus on Toronto, and possibly don't like focus too much on Canada, because nobody pays that much attention to us here. Wow. <laughs> I would You're say, all going to have to deal no, with I that. Would, no, I would say the most um, uh, but that's positive, positive reactions and opportunities um, that I've gotten have not been inside Canada. It's been like very minute, you know, and I'm somebody who actually sells like 70% of my work. So it's not like I make shit and I've got like a whole studio full of stuff that I'm just looking at, like I sell. So I would say I have discussions with other artists within my generation and it's been pretty much similar discussions. It's like, it's not really gonna,
5: so you your, your, your
4: freedom and your art is not going to happen in Toronto or in Canada Wow! as a black Canadian artist. That's what I would say.
1: Wow. Dana? Uh,
2: um, yeah, I think I, I could just like maybe just reflect on this idea of freedom more than say what my idea of freedom, please, because please. I think that might take uh, the rest of my life. Um, But yeah, a a super obvious one, which just seems like really naive to even say, but I feel I have to say it, Um, but yeah, the ultimate freedom would be to make work and to not have to, to make work or to receive uh, funding or to receive, uh, without having to wonder, uh, okay, so am I getting selected?
1: about the external?
2: Yeah, my, it, oh, is my work being selected because I'm black? Is it right. tokenism? Uh, oh, oh uh, if I could, if, yeah, <laughs> you know, it, um, yeah, if I could be considered uh, as a, a, an, an artist and a human being and uh, above, uh, but it's I, even the words coming out of my mouth, it seems ridiculous, and I'm not
1: even quite sure that it's true. Well, we need, to, we need so. to meditate on this, so. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, listen, the Pandora's box has been open. Give thanks to uh, Karen Miranda, <laughs> Fav and Dana. Really grateful for, you know, their generosity of, of spirit. They did not hold water in their mouths. You know, they said it. So I would love, we would love to hear from you. Um, I guess I saw in the back there, Curtis.
0: I wanted to address when you guys were talking about race and politics and the institution. As a kid who grew up in Edmonton, Alberta, outside of uh, my community, for the most part, i found that the biggest struggle, for me, hasn't necessarily been from the institution. It's been from my own community and within people that look like me. Um, At the opening for Basquiat, I said, I'm not saying that black lives don't matter, because I'm coming from the school of, the first person as an artist to take me in is Lawrence Paul, who's an indigenous artist from BC, who took me in his, his studio as his first apprentice telling me the stories as I'm watching Robert Pickton do these horrible things in BC. So I said, and I started with that, let's look around the room, we're all human beings. What's the common denominator? We're all human beings. I'm not saying that black lives don't matter, I'm saying all lives matter. And this is coming from being in New York, hanging out with painters like Hugo McLeod and Devin Troy Struthers who not once did we have the conversation about blackness, we had the conversation about culture and the world and art. So after saying that, leaving the stage, I was approached being told by a group of black Canadians that I undermine black identity by not addressing myself as a black artist or not saying only black lives matter. And I'm moving the conversation away from this. So it's not just the institutions, it's black artists who don't fit the profile of what it means that I don't just make works of black images, I make works of issues going on, that I'm finding more struggle for acceptance within my own community sometimes because the work I'm creating at this time isn't solely based around my black identity. So I think that that's a conversation that needs to, what is is black enough? I came from the music world where when I was recording music I was told it was too white And I was told that it's not black enough and the black people wouldn't like it and white people wouldn't like it. And then I got to New York and none of that shit mattered. So what's going on within Canada? I know our struggle with identity isn't necessarily as old, but we do have roots, strong roots from the Maroons coming over in the 1700s that we should be past the idea of this whole black artist identity thing. You're not representing the community. If you're a good artist making work and you're out pushing your work and you're doing cool things that should be enough for acceptance within the entire community. Maybe I've got off on the end, but I just really want to address the backlash that I've often received, not from, but from what I'm supposed to feel as my own people.
1: Hmm. Does anyone, does anyone, do any of you want to respond to that? Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think there are two, yeah. two things at stake, right? You know, I think the Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter comment is different than other black people policing one as a black artist. Right? I think All Lives Matter is obvious, but I think, I mean, what he's saying is valid about, you know... What do you think of that? I mean, this thing of your, own the, community, yeah. your own community policing you as a black artist. I feel like it's an
3: evolving... St- situation it might have been more relevant at a point and once again i'm from an american perspective when there was out and out segregation more of a blatant racism in america not being able to vote um, when there was perhaps more of a need for you know the black artist or that voice at that particular time and i'm in no way trying to say that we are in a post-racial situation because we still have crazy things, but I think as we evolve, I think that young man is is representative of someone who's expanding his thinking and then I think there are others that still want it to be like it was or if in fact needed to be in the 60s or 70s when you know, it was like, say it now, you know, or say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud type of thing. You know what I'm saying? Right. So I think as we evolve, we have to be aware like we are in a transition. It may be moving slow for some people. Yeah. It may be moving a little faster for others. That's I mean.
5: The other, other
4: issue is that a lot of people don't understand visual art it's not a mainstream art, it's not like music, it's not like film, it's not like literature, which is actually why it drives me absolutely crazy when ever I see that there's an art form and I see black people involved in it that are not fine art specific because there are all sorts of nuances and specificities to it. And I find, um, like what Curtis is saying, like. I find a lot of uh, people who have that response about black art. Black artists actually don't really know a lot, just in a general sense, about the fine arts, art. and that's like part of a
3: issue as well. Yeah, I think it's a good point. Interesting. Interesting. questions.
6: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just had a question uh, for Fab Five there. Uh, I was listening to some Kara's one like. Uh, Speak up a little bit. I, w- I was listening to uh, some Keras. One, there was, a, there was one song called The South Bronx, right? And he talks about how they used to take power from the streetlights. Yeah. You know, and like that's freedom, right? Because they don't yeah. have to pay any power bill, you know? Yeah. And then like all that freedom leads up to like uh, artistic expression, right? Exactly. And so like all this, like kind of how I describe it as Orwellianism, right? Is like kind of oppressing like uh, all artists, you know what I mean? So when you can get away from all that, like, uh, policing and, like, people, like, saying negative and bad things, like, because police are bad, right? Like, nobody likes them because they ruin your day. Doesn't, Doesn't matter, like, who you are. You know what I mean? Like, they just come after you and they try to hurt you. So when you're feeling that, you're not feeling any artistic expression. So when you have, like, a place where, like, the South Bronx back then, where people are, like, all free and like you know, like you have like a lot of uh, growth. You know what I mean, and so that's where I think where a lot of that came from.
3: That's all. Yes, I I agree. <laughs> Basically, yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, I guess. I mean, I I caught a lot of what you said. I guess, yeah, the artistic freedom, a lot of uh, what developed around hip hop. Had to take it and then and also just make it and uh, yeah. And the first music video I directed was for KRS One, a video called My Philosophy, which was uh, something I'm very proud of.
6: Okay, okay. Uh, Fab Five, Ferdy, I have a question for you. Could you give me an insight into what um, Basquiat thought of like? Those old school train writers like Don D, Case Two, because he, you know, he had a different style and just, yeah, you know, what was his, what was his opinion? Oh and What's wow. yours well, as well?
3: Yeah, well, when we first met, like you know, that was a, a lot. Uh, that was a big thing that we talked about because when Jean Michel started to really kind of express himself, it was. Uh, you guys may know he did this thing called Samo and it was him and a couple of other guys. And SAMO meant that same old shit, if you will. And he'd write these very clever little kind of poetics slash statements. Um, And he would do a lot of these on the trains, but they would just be tags on the inside. So he was very cleverly developing a a way within that arena to express himself, him and his crew. It was another cat named Al Diaz who was down with Samo. They both went to this thing uh, called city as Schools. When you get kicked out of high school because you don't really want to follow the, the rules. They would send uh, people this thing. I went myself and didn't feel good about it at the time, but later when you learn all these art, artistic creative folks had experiences at City at School, it was like, yes! I wasn't a complete dropout. And, um, but John was a big fan of a lot of people that did the more elaborate murals on subways, and. He had favorites that we'd talk about, because back at that time when the graffiti was really raging, late 70s into the early 80s, you'd see something incredibly major, a mural coming inside a train, and people would talk about it, like in the, yo, did you, you see what so-and-so just did? Yo, I caught that. Yeah, it was on the five or the four, whatever particular subway line. So it was something that we definitely talked about.
4: We've got time for two more questions. I'm gonna do this person and someone over here.
3: So I just wanna say thank you guys for this wonderful panel. It was very insightful and full of uh, good things to marinate on. Um, So this question is a two-part question. Um, First part is, if John Basquiat was still alive today, what do you think he would be? And what do you think his art would look like? And then the second question is, uh, directly for Fab, where you personally knew him. So, did you have a vision of where you think he could have been, or where do you think he would be going? Yeah, if I he was th- still alive, sorry. Yes, absolutely. I've uh, somebody hit me up on Twitter um, not long ago, and I was sure. Like I said, with the different things that I've been blessed to do, and what Jean-Michel started out doing, I'm pretty sure he would have made more music because he was like into producing and. You know, he made that one rap record, you know, with Ramel Z rapping, and it was very interesting. He had this chick that used to play at, uh, hang out at this place called Squat Theater. I think they were Polish, like a performance art group. Uh, It was on 23rd Street, it was really amazing. Anyway, this young girl that was a part of that played the cello on that, and you know, that was really pretty out there at that early 80s point in hip hop. Um, I'm sure he would have did more filmmaking. Uh, perhaps directing as well as in front of the camera, Jean. I remember when the movie Downtown 81 was being put together and it was like, you know, literally just being two steps away from being homeless the way Jean-Michel lived at that time. And then to be cast in this, you know, movie was like amazing. And I remember being on the set. I mean, I'm in that film as well. But I remember Jean having these very specific ways about how to convey his performance in his scene. Like there'd be, lyri- there'd be lyrics, there'd be lines that he was supposed to say, but I remember Jean kind of arguing with the director about I can do it with my face and very, having this very like, sophisticated understanding of how to convey what he wanted to convey in that, which was really kind of, you know, we were like twenty twenty one at that time. Yeah. And um, so I'm sure he would have basically expressed himself and moved into different mediums of expression if he would still be here with us.
1: One more.
5: Thank you all so much for being here today. This is just outstanding. Um, A message that I get from Basquiat's work when I see it is that I felt like, and I guess that's why it resonated with me and still resonates so much, is that there is this frantic energy, almost as if he has so much to say that he has to get it out. And it's almost like he had this premonition from a young age, just in some of the things that I've seen him speak or say in documentary and, and quotes that I've seen written, that he had this premonition about his death or just not living a long life. And I feel like I can go back to his work all the time and see other messages in his legacy that resonate with us so much today. Like the messages are coming over and over again. So part of the legacy I see for him is that he wanted his messages to live on and that they will resonate more than once and they will continue to resonate. So I guess in relation to legacy, the question I have for you is, what do you feel you want your legacies to be in your work that we see that will continue to live on?
2: <laughs> i mean i I was
3: thinking oh, yeah. I thought that's a drop the mic moment right there no question
2: <laughs> i I was thinking about this specifically in the first during the first panel um because the form that I work with is so damn ephemeral um and yeah, it's, it's contemporary dance, so it's like quite in a ghetto and, you know, I'll have a public of like 60 people uh, per show and it's not recorded and there's not photos and... Um, and so I, I think I had... Yeah, before I had accepted this, this uh, e- ephemerality um, and just figured that the work is doing what it needs to do and it's in the air and it's doing its thing and it's fine. Um, and this was like kind of the first moment where I I felt all of a sudden some kind of a like a social responsibility or some kind of a yeah there's like really not a shitload of black contemporary dancers um, making work and so I don't know what, (laughs) what can I do about that should I be making more films should I be having more should I be writing a lot more should I be Publishing work, like what I don't know, but um, yeah, this like was the first time that this this question actually became a little a little bit stickier, or became even something that I should think about.
3: Well, I think it's a good question. I haven't really thought a lot about that um, in a sense, but one thing I do um, spend a lot of time doing: I'll go into a zone on YouTube. Um, Looking at, as I'm sure we've all done, you start off looking at something, something musical, something from way back then, and then on the side there's all this other stuff, and you end up like drifting off and have. I mean, I have hourly, hours, hours upon hours of sessions where I'm just discovering and immersing myself in content. Um, so I think whether you know, no matter how we do think about what we want our legacies to be in the digital age, it's all going to be here. It's all going to be here in some form and even more accessible for others to look at uh, what we've done. um, You know, whether it's a quick selfie that we've taken and put on YouTube or, you know, that interesting film that was done that might have only been shown in a couple of libraries or schools that we now can see. So we. I mean, the legacies will, will be here, I'm, I mean, I think, and then I think, obviously, no, no matter what one says, it's up to people to d- determine when they look back, like, uh, he was about this, and he was about that, you know what I'm saying, or whatever it is. Uh, uh, people, we have more power in uh, interpreting legacies as opposed to, uh, but I'll give some more thought to that, actually. <laughs>
4: Well, a lot of my work deals with um, women who have felt like they lost themselves at some point, and, and the way that I see them as kind of like, a, almost like a crossroads figure, actually, kind of like an ancestor who's looking at them and like thinking about like, what do I see of them, even though they feel like, you know, they're really at their lowest. So I think um, for me, I would hope that women would look at my work and feel like feel affirmed. Like women who have had very troubled childhoods, I uh, feel like they're understood because that was where I was at. So a lot of the subjects that I choose are usually women who have had very troubled childhoods, have had very um, uh, very harsh uh, sexual abuse issues things that I've gone through. So like, I feel like I want women like that to see themselves, see the beauty in themselves.
1: Um, I want to thank Karen, Fab and Dana again for this rich conversation and debate and to thank you, give thanks for your petulance and enthusiasm and disagreement. And I think that in, in really sort of Um, working through Basquiat's legacy, we're clearly still struggling through a kind of language with which to talk about this work and to talk about um, artists by people of African descent in general. And I think what we're learning is that the language is in the work itself. And so I hope this urges us to pay even more serious um, meditative attention to this work. And I thank you again.
0: And I thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.